Hi, everyone. This is Gary Bean welcoming you to the LL Research Podcast in the now episode number 819. <laughs> LL Research is a nonprofit organization dedicated to freely sharing spiritually oriented information and fostering community. And towards this end has two websites, the archive website, llresearch.org, and the community website, bringforth.org. During each episode, those of us at LL Research form a panel to consider questions from spiritual seekers. Our panel consists of Jim McCarty, husband to the late Carla Ruckert, scribe for The Raw Contact, and president of LL Research, along with Austin Bridges and myself, who are working hard to keep the mission of LL Research alive and well, each of us a devoted seeker and student of the Law of One. We intend this podcast to be a platform of discussion as we consider questions from spiritual seekers that often challenge us to articulate our own perspective. Our replies to these questions are not final and authoritative. Instead, they are generally subjective interpretations stemming from our own studies and life experiences. We always ask each who listens to exercise their own discernment and to listen for their own resonance in determining what is true for them. If you would like to submit a question for this show, please do so. Our humble podcast relies on your questions. You may either send an email to contact at llresearch.org or go to llresearch.org slash podcast for further instructions. Again, I am Gary Bean, and we are embarking on a new episode of LL Research's weekly podcast, In the Now. And we've got a great show lined up for you today. We've got a question from Mary and a question from Curtis and a question from the third person who we probably won't get to today. But Jim and Austin, are you on board? On board. I guess so. John Stewart used to start out all of his shows by saying, we've got a great show for you today. And then (laughs) insert whoever was coming on to the show. So our first question comes from Mary, sent via email. And uh, before we begin this question, um, we all three of us would like to take a moment to give a shout out to Mary because she has been diligently and uninterruptedly transcribing all of the In The Now shows. Um, She and Austin have worked close together in managing that. And she has, I think she's up to date on all the new In The Now shows and has been working through the archive um, with Carla shows. And we're amassing a database and someday we're going to get it edited and put it up on the website itself. (laughs) Someday. Thank you, Mary. Yes, thank you so much, Mary. Excellent work. Amazing work. Mary says, in session 41, question 19, Ra says, quote, the key to balance may then be seen in the unstudied, spontaneous, and honest response of entities towards experiences, thus using experience to the utmost, then applying the balancing exercises and achieving the proper attitude for the most purified spectrum of energy center manifestation in violet ray. Could you talk about what it really means for our responses to be unstudied, spontaneous, and honest? Perhaps some examples of what this looks like? Show. I have two to pick from. Uh, Jim, how about we start with you? Okay. Um, If you take a little time at the end of the day to do some meditating, Mary, and while you're meditating, think about, or maybe before the meditation, contemplate how your day went happened in your day? How did you feel about it? Usually, those are unstudied responses. Those, you don't usually plan your day by saying, well, if somebody says this to me, I'm going to feel this way. Or if I see this fellow and this happens, I'll feel this way. Usually, 
what happens is unstudied and spontaneous. So what Rob was suggesting is at the end of the day, after you've had a chance to think about what went on in your day, that you look at those places where you were moved either towards, uh, you know, away from the normal compassion and acceptance of what is occurring, being perfect. If something took you away from the perfection one way or the other, uh, positively or negatively, then look at that response and try to create it again in your meditation and make it big, make it real big, outrageously large. And then wait for a few moments and usually what will happen is that the uh, polar opposite of that response will come into your mind. And as it comes into your mind, then also make it as large and outrageous as you did in the first response. Eventually, they should be somewhere close to the same. One outrageous in one direction, and maybe it's patience. One outrageous in the other direction, impatience. Or maybe love and anger. Or maybe uh, fear and uh, safety. Whatever the balance might be that you're working with. Then, just look at those two ways as being means by which the Creator knows itself within your being. Because that's the purpose, apparently, of all of the creation, is that we offer to the Creator different ways for it to know itself by how we respond to catalyst. Eventually, though, Ra says that the truth of it all is that there really isn't anything that's uh, right or wrong, positive or negative, that all is the Creator, and the Creator is love. The creator is unity. So anything that is a distortion from there is what we're working on. So really, we're helping the Creator to know itself by being extremely distorted. And then we're helping ourselves to come to know the Creator by balancing the distortions and becoming a, what Carla used to call a 360-degree being, that we've got everything contained within us, and we accept it all, and we're not uh, concerned about one thing or another. And we just move through the... <laughs> this is the ideal here. We move through the creation um, as um, a being of unity, a being of love. So, Austin, what do you think? Uh, well, I... I think that was a great answer. Um, I would drive home the point that you're basically making in that there's always going to be an unstudied, spontaneous, and honest response. Um, the, in any situation where we have catalyst, there will be a root response. So I uh, have my own example that I would use of maybe that people can relate to. Uh, and I use a example of road rage very commonly when talking about catalyst because i think it's something that we can all relate to i think we've all gotten mad on the road at some jerk driver before so uh let's imagine a situation where you are uh, driving down the road respectfully and peacefully and some jerk cuts you off and nearly causes a wreck and the reaction of most people in this situation i think would be anger and the key then, I think, is how the anger is expressed. To someone who does not use Catalyst and who isn't as self-aware of their actions or their reactions, they might openly express that anger by engaging in this road rage. They could try to race up to the other car, uh, show them their middle finger, yell and scream, tailgate them, try to race in front of them, and then slow down, slam on your brakes. All of these things are based on an unstudied, an honest, and a spontaneous response of anger. But let's take another person, someone with a little more self-awareness, and who maybe has utilized Catalyst a little bit in their past. They're, this person <clears throat> might get cut off, and the reaction is still anger, but instead of engaging with that anger, they've decided at some point 
in their history of road rage that expressing this anger on the road by attempting to do some kind of highway battle is dangerous. And it's never in the history of road rage ever resulted in the other driver who's driving like a jerk saying, oh, yeah, maybe since this other person is mad at me, I should probably stop driving like a jerk. Usually increases the distortion, I think, and two people can get into very dangerous situations while doing that. So this other person, instead of getting uh, really mad and uh, engaging in that anger, they might still curse and they might still be seeing red in the situation, but they withhold from engaging and they allow this other person to continue speeding on their way. And I do think that this is a more spiritually mature and positive response, but the anger is still there. It's just that the reaction was different. The unstudied, spontaneous, and honest reaction is still that root of anger. And just because it wasn't expressed in a certain way, it's still present and it's still observed. And Ross talks about this somewhat in the session 42, question 9. And they say, The entity which has worked long enough with catalyst to be able to feel the catalyst but not find it necessary to express reactions is not yet balanced but suffers no depolarization due to the transparency of its experiential continuum. Thus, the gradual increase in the ability to observe one's reactions and to know the self will bring the self ever closer to a truer balance. Patience is requested and suggested, for the catalyst is intense upon your plane, and its use must be appreciated over a period of consistent learn-slash-teaching. And I think the nuance here is that dismissing our internal reactions uh, because of our outer reactions isn't necessarily appropriate. Ra isn't saying that expressing that anger in the moment is, <clears throat> or I'm sorry, Ra isn't saying that repressing that anger or uh, not expressing that anger is dishonest or not spontaneous, but rather a person in that situation who withheld from engaging in road rage may get to the end and think, well, I didn't engage in this road rage, and instead I responded patiently without creating further danger. My work with this catalyst is done. I don't need to worry about my road rage anymore. And I think it's definitely good to recognize that simply observing this anger rather than engaging it is positive progress. But the anger is still there for us to work with and shouldn't just be glossed over because of our external actions. And uh, our internal reaction of anger is still our unstudied spontaneous response that then Jim is talking about at the end of the day, uh, taking into the balancing meditation. What do you have to offer for that one, Gary? <clears throat> That's an interesting tact that um, I hadn't included in my answer, that being that if you manufacture a response for the moment that um, over top of the original, as you were saying, root response, then you are not and you have not achieved balance because you've manufactured the correct response because that original response was still there and still needs worked with. Um, <clears throat> so as to uh, an example, you go in for a job interview, interviewer examines your resume and says, uh, I see here that you have... Uh, been an exotic dancer for five years and your immediate honest spontaneous response is to feel a sense of embarrassment or shame over that or because the interviewer asked the question in a condescending manner your unstudied response is anger how dare he uh, ask the question in that way you think um but the re actual the response that you give is one of confident composure that casts the um, your previous work in a positive light, not betraying the actual emotions you are experiencing. So, as I understand it, evolutionarily speaking, 
speaking, according to Ra, it's better to experience your actual response than to give the measured reply. Um, to not to not experience and express the original response denies yourself the full use of the catalyst. It blunts the catalyst, and it denies the other self the full use of the catalyst as well. <clears throat> But practically speaking, from the standpoint of the job prospects in that hypothetical scenario, it's probably better that the person being interviewed give the calculated reply. Um, I think that it's a matter, this question is a matter of honoring and directly facing and if possible, expressing your actual, as Austin was saying, root response to the situation even if that response is complex or it shifts from one emotion to the next um, versus masking the original response with one that is manufactured to achieve the desired outcome in the moment. But what if that desired outcome is for the purpose of service to others? Then I had quoted exactly the Q&A that Austin targeted, 42.9, which I won't reread, but is excellent in this regard. And um, he gave a great example with uh, road rage. Another one of somewhat similar vein is that your honest response to somebody, your immediate knee-jerk honest response is to be really angry at somebody, but you don't express that anger because you simply don't want to hurt the other person. And maybe you're mature enough to know that um, the anger is a result of your own blockage. It's not actually them. Even though the anger... Seems like it's about them. You at least intellectually know that um, this is really my own blockage. I'm creating this. So you don't express the anger and you put on a nice face for the other person. So you, um, you haven't expressed or experienced the unstudied, spontaneous, honest response. Uh, but as 42.9 was saying, um, you're not repressing per se because there's a, a transparency in your experience, you recognize that you have um, withheld the honest response in order to be considerate of others or in service to others. And then as Austin and Jim were describing, you can work on what was the actual response um, later on in meditation or at the end of the day. Those were my thoughts on that. Um, great question. Austin and Jim, do you all have anything further to offer? Uh, no, not for me. Maybe um, just a, a nuance in what you're talking about and the importance of expressing it. I do think that expression of our honest response is important. In my example of road rage, the engaging in that rage and trying to you know, do a battle with that other person on the road is an expression of it. But there are other ways to healthily express that without actually causing danger. And I think expressing is good because it accentuates that distortion. It helps you feel it. It helps you understand it more. But um, there are other ways to express it. You could maybe later on write a poem about the jerk on the road or uh, just you know shout in your car without you know distracting yourself from driving. But um, not trying to repress the response itself, but finding a more proper way to express it that doesn't hurt other people, doesn't cause danger, and is in more service to others, like you were saying, Gary. That's just a nuance I would add. The Jerk on the Road by Austin Bridges. Oh, how I hate you, jerk. How I wish I could dot, dot, dot. Yeah. 
make a good song. Yeah, expression um, seems like it completes the life cycle of a distortion or, or carries that distortion or bias or blockage or movement of energy through its full incarnation, if you will, and uh, gives it a chance to serve its purpose and be processed and integrated and understood into your overall beingness and is healthy. Um, <clears throat> any other thoughts? Nope, not for me. All right, then. Um, Curtis is next on the docket. Curtis sent a question in via email and asked, um, I believe that Ra has said that it is necessary to find the antithesis of a blockage, and it will simply fall away. When I recognize a limiting belief, which may be negative, it seems that understanding its opposite is not enough. What is the best way to change your thinking and reality? Uh, Austin, do you have a thought to that question? Yeah, I think that uh, Curtis has the gist of what Ra was saying, but maybe is thinking that it should be a more immediate thing, that our um, blockages will simply fall away by recognizing their antithesis. Um, there, Ra talks about this somewhat uh, in session 42. In question 11, they say, The thoughts of an entity, its feelings or emotions, and least of all its behavior, are the signposts for the teaching slash learning of self by self. In the analysis of one's experiences of a diurnal cycle, just like Jim was talking about in the last answer, an entity may assess what it considers to be inappropriate thoughts, behaviors, feelings, and emotions. In examining these inappropriate activities of mind, body, and spirit complexes, the entity they men place these distortions in the proper vibrational array and thus see where work is needed. And uh, at other places in the material, Ra talks about exactly what Curtis is saying in recognizing these antitheses. And uh, that's exactly what Jim was saying, too. And um, I think that just the key to what Curtis is asking is the fact that these things don't simply just fall away after one balancing session. You don't get to the end of the day and examine some uh, expression of anger or something that you did that may have hurt somebody and recognize this antithesis and then for the rest of your life that is never an issue again. It's just not how our minds work. It's not how our brains work. Um, it is a gradual process that takes a lot of practice, a lot of analysis and it is something that uh, is the work of a lifetime if this distortion is a deep distortion that maybe we came into the incarnation to balance. It's uh, just not something that we can solve in one simple meditation. So I think the key to what Curtis is saying is uh, discipline and practice and um, persistence in our balancing. And if it's something that comes up again and again and again, the more that we balance it, the more that we enter into that contemplation to meditation to recognize its antithesis, I think then the more we will feel balanced and the more we will be balanced. And after a while, maybe our responses do change and that our response is more closer to love than what it was. But it's not an instant thing. Thank you, Austin. Jim, how about you uh, serve as the meat of this sandwich? <laughs> Um, well, I think Austin had an excellent answer. I don't think there's really a lot that I can add to it. I would just uh, underline, repeat, bold face and italics that it does take a while that uh, 
we incarnated with uh, a few lessons. There really aren't a lot of things, a handful, four or five things we're working on usually. And we have the rest of the incarnation to do it. And it'll probably take the rest of the incarnation to do it. That's the sign of the stalwart, sturdy spiritual seeker that is willing to enter upon this journey and continue on even when it seems like nothing is happening. Uh, I think Ross said at one point that, um, that finally the time will come when the seeker will discover that which it is seeking. And who can know when the seeker will open up to the moment and turn its head and discover there is that uh, unity and the love and the light that it's been seeking. It's worth so much more after you spend a lifetime seeking it than it would be if you could just meditate a few months and there it is. So uh, this is indeed a pearl of great price and don't be discouraged by it taking a long time. That's what we're here to do. That's the way that we come to know the creator and the creator comes to know itself. So keep on keeping on. Quick side question before I dive into my response. Uh, Jim, in your reading of Michael Newton's work and Brian Weiss's work uh, who have investigated the mechanics of reincarnation, did you ever discover any case any testimonies of somebody um, having recalled a life where they learned their lessons, uh, say they reached age 30 and had successfully learned their lessons uh, prior to the end of the incarnation? Um, some people might have learned their lessons by the age of 30, but then they were usually not around for a lot longer after that. Now, usually it does take the entire incarnation. Um, uh that uh, you you know you you just better plan on that. <laughs> Such wish- that is a humbling thought. <clears throat> I was considering what what would happen to like what happens with the rest of the incarnation if somebody does learn them early. Do you speculate that then they leave? They've achieved the reason for the incarnation, so then they they then leave. Uh, there was no case that uh, I've seen shared either by uh, Weiss, uh, Newton, or Schwartz of that nature. Uh, what mostly happened was that uh, people discovered, if they had these regressive hypnosis experiences, that they had planned pretty precisely just exactly what was going on in the life and when the lessons would be learned. I mean, we've we've taken a lot of time and effort to make these incarnations as potentially efficient as possible. The people we're going to meet, the situations we're going to be in, and how we're going to respond to them. And we've, we've pretty much got it laid out. Now, there are surprises along the way. Sometimes... Uh, things will go a little bit awry. But in general, we seem to be pretty good at making plans, we and our guides and our higher self. And that being assiduous and and continuous and uh, continuing on with this this lesson as long as it takes. And then, by golly, by the time we finally learn it, there's something that kind of clicks. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, That happened for me, finally. You know, after 68 years of working on my my anger and my lack of uh, compassion for myself on August 3rd of this past year, it finally happened. And it felt so right. And uh, it's been different ever since. That doesn't mean you're going to leave the incarnation anytime soon, does it? Hopefully you still have lessons. I still have lessons, but that one was a big (laughs) one. (laughs) And it meant a lot to finally get a handle on that. Uh. I would add to that that even if somebody does finish what they incarnated to do, that uh, we incarnate for more than just working on ourselves. Conscious beings also incarnate to serve. So if you reach the age of 30 and somehow 
miraculously you have balanced every distortion that you came into this lifetime to balance, you then have an entire lifetime to serve from that place of love and joy that you've reached. And I think that in itself is a powerful and meaningful thing. And you would be extremely joyful to continue from that point. But I think that um, we're here for both things. And it's pretty rare that somebody would finish uh, balancing and finish working on themselves and then just have the rest of their lifetime devoted to service. Yeah, good point. I was just double checking because I'm pretty sure that I finished all my lessons and I'm not 30, but everything's frosting on the cake from now on. Yeah. Yeah. Good job, Gary. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Um, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, what was I going to say? Uh, about what you said, Jim, that it took 68 years in your case. I think that's encouraging for um, people listening as well because you have led, well, at least since um, your own awakening around your college years, you've led a, a, a comparatively disciplined and intensive life of spiritual seeking. And um, each path is unique and it's hard to compare paths. But uh, I think it might be encouraging to seekers to see that here is somebody who has had years of sustained intensive effort. And um, it's really a long course. Uh, it doesn't, lessons don't come quick and easy. They take a lot of time and effort and sacrifice. <clears throat> so um, back to Curtis's question, which was as a refresher about um, balancing and what is the best way to change your thinking in reality. And um, I would say in response to What's the best way to change your thinking in reality? K-Y-A-Y-B-C, uh, which is an acronym <clears throat> a friend of mine pulled from the long, law of one a long time ago, which uh, represents the disciplines of the personality as described by Ra. Know yourself, accept yourself, become the creator. And in that process, I think that the conscious mind does have a very strong role to play. Um, as Austin and Jim were getting at, um, some of those ways include you can set your intentions each day. You can make affirmations. You can build rituals and routines. You can choose to study. You can choose to turn the attention upon spiritual seeking and actively and consistently undertake spiritual discipline. Uh, these are all activities that are really led by the the direction and the captainship the stewardship of the conscious mind and will and desire are the keys cultivate them intensify them harness them aim them let that desire burn brighter let yourself purify that desire find out what it is you actually desire and there is there are many layers to desire from the superficial and materialistic and escape um, or satisfaction-seeking desire to the core desire to serve others, and then the even deeper desire to know the Creator and know yourself. But all use of the will ends in surrender. <clears throat> um, through With will, you burn and you long and you make your best effort, but the will is released from attachment to outcome, trusting in that which is greater than the personal will. Um, part of the reason for that release to attachment to outcome is that um, so much happens outside of the conscious mind. So much happens subconsciously or on a level outside of our control or our, our knowledge or our information. 
So we aim as best we can, but we release attachment to outcome in faith and in trust. And I think that meditation is the way that you let all of that conscious work completed sink into the roots of the mind, as Ra would say, and spread throughout the being to allow changes and transformations to occur. It's like with conscious work, you're kind of giving the self instructions and desires. And then through meditation, those instructions or programs uh, have a chance to sink down in and mingle with the more intelligent and um, deeper and broader self that's connected to all that there is. So then there's a, a, a mingling of that directive with the deeper intelligence and work is done on that level. And as to things falling away, I don't think you generally make unwanted biases or distortions fall away. That falling away, uh, as Austin was saying, is a a long-term process, and it's a consequence of knowing, accepting, forgiving, and healing. As this process matures, the self no longer calls upon or energizes or identifies with unwanted distortions. Thus, they fall away. They've been balanced. Um, Sometimes, though, though the process is gradual and incremental, typically, sometimes uh, there are breakthroughs and things do happen dramatically in the span of a moment and something falls away. One moment, you're one person and the next moment you're changed Then you no longer... um, I think... Jim, would you describe the the transformation you were just speaking about? Was did it culminate in an in a, a, a epiphonic sort of moment? Oh yeah. Uh, ever since that experience, I've had a lot more compassion for everything and everyone around me, and I've been much more um, sensitive to things that are going around. And I just feel more life everywhere. I feel more fully awake and alive. It's uh, been a big change for me. I still notice catalysts that would have set me off before, but it's that mention that Ra made. You know, I still have to balance it because I still notice times where I, before it would have made me angry, I would have picked up a cup and smashed it to the floor or something. I still see that opportunity, but I don't take advantage of it. However, I still need to balance it. Still see the opportunity. So do you think if you were fully balanced, you wouldn't even register the opportunity? Right. Hmm. So that's decades of work, and then there's a, a watershed moment or a threshold, and bam, Jim is on the other side of it and um, has, a, in Jim's case, a whole broader perspective on reality. Not an intellectual perspective because – Obviously, Jim has had that all along, but a broader heart perspective, you might say. Yeah, the the heart really opened up. Um, So things do, it seems, fall away in a moment, but that's where it peaks above the water is a result of a a lot of unseen work. Um, And to conclude, Earlier I had said that you one does generally not make unwanted distortions fall away. I said generally because there are actually means available to the adept to consciously create changes in programming during the incarnation. Uh, one means that Ra suggested is a emphasis on careful regimen of fasting. 
in 40.14 Ra says, those entities in need of purging the self of a poison thought form or emotion complex do well to take care in following a program of careful fasting until the destructive thought form has been purged analogously with the byproducts of ridding the physical vehicle of excess material. Again, you see the value not to the body complex, but used as a link for the mind and spirit. Thus, self reveals self to self. But, Ra says, the super adept, well, they don't say call any adept super, but (laughs) in my words, the super adept um, can achieve the same result of consciously reprogramming themselves without needing the actual fasting. In 41.22, Ra says, the self, if conscious to a great extent, enough extent of the workings of this catalyst and the techniques of programming may through concentration of the will and the faculty of faith alone cause reprogramming without the analogy of the fasting the diet or other analogous body complex disciplines and that wraps up my response to curtis's question uh jim or austin do you all have anything more to offer Look, one more little thing. You asked if uh, anybody in uh, Dr. Newton or Weiss's uh, experiences had ever discovered lessons learned, and I hadn't read anything about that. But I do remember when Don and Lawrence Allison were doing regressions way back in the 60s and 50s, there was a young boy that was, uh, I guess, 16 or 17 years old, and he had intense allergies to all kinds of pollen and flowers and dust and things from the outdoors. And they did a regression on him and discovered that back in England, somewhere around the 1850s, he was a very wealthy man, lived in the country in a large manor, and that he had his own gardener. And he liked to spend time in the garden. He'd really rather be there than be out with people. So he shut himself off from the world around him and stayed in the garden. And when he went to the uh, time between incarnations, he decided that that was too much of uh, separating himself from other people. He needed to be... uh, uh, accepting of people. So he made himself allergic to that which he loved so much in the previous incarnation. So during the regression, uh, they contacted his higher self and asked if that lesson had been learned. And the higher self agreed that it had. So after they brought the boy out of the trance, uh, there were some magnolia blooms on the piano in the room where they were doing the regression. Don scooped up some of the pollen and blew it in the boy's face. And the boy looked at him incredulously and said, you know, I'm going to have to go to the hospital now. Don said, <laughs> really? And he said, well, you know, I'm not sneezing. So it is possible to learn a lesson. I don't think we can learn them all at once, but uh, sometimes during the hypnosis uh, regressions, it is possible to um, take care of some facet of what you're here for. It's a really interesting question to think that the incarnation can only go so far as that which was intended prior to incarnation. That if if you meet the said goals of incarnation, then the incarnation is complete. The time is up. Um, I don't know that that's the case, but... Uh, well, I think yeah. like Austin said, it's never really up because you can be of service to other people. I mean, if, even if you have uh, a total experience of you know, fully experienced presence of the one infinite creator, and that's your experience, that's what you live every day. Ross said, usually positively oriented entities don't choose to go on. They choose even more to be here and serve others because now they see even more reason to do it. They feel moved to do it. So I think Austin had a good point there about being of service after, if we happen to learn uh, the majority of our lessons. 
And I guess, too, <clears throat> if you have reached that particular state of consciousness where you're just, just describing, you know, where you – enlightenment, essentially, union with all that there is, then um, I think you're a much more informed being and you could probably make uh, pre-incarnational level choices while within the incarnation. Um, you don't have to wait to be on the other side of the veil to direct your journey as you would while on the other side of the veil. Oh, definitely. I remember Don Astaroff once, um, if something went kind of wrong with some of our catalysts, we felt that things weren't working out right, could we make some choices in the incarnation to alter the catalyst? And Ross said, yes. So we can alter what's going on in our lessons while we're here. Besides mm -hmm. just learning the lessons, kind of get back on track is what we can do. Yeah, free will is paramount. It's such an interesting interplay between the different levels of free will. Between destiny, so-called, and the incarnational free will. <clears throat> that um, concludes my thoughts. Do you all have any more? I'm all done. <laughs> um, I might push us over our time, but there is an interesting aspect that I wanted to touch on that at least I'm interested in. And... Um, that is regarding to what I said earlier about how it's not how the brain works that stuff just falls away like that. I agree with uh, you, Gary, that sometimes there is a sort of a miraculous moment or like the moment that Jim had where everything just kind of clicked into place. But uh, understanding how the brain works in this regard, I think, is helpful to some people. So I might try to give a quick um, explanation of what's happening in our brains when we have responses like this that seem to not just fall away. And our brains, uh, as most people know, operate with neural pathways where, uh, say, we have a certain response, certain neural pathways are activated. And the more that those neural pathways are activated, they become hardened, basically. They become more easily accessed and more easily activated. And so let's say you live your whole life conditioned to respond to a certain type of situation with anger every single time you respond with anger, that neural pathway is activated more easily and more easily in response to that situation. And so what I think is happening when we do this balancing process that Curtis is talking about and we go into meditation uh, with a mindset of acceptance and love and we try to uh, access the antithesis and experience the antithesis, we are activating essentially sort of an opposite neural pathway in our brains to then sort of counteract and counterbalance the hardened neural pathway of the response of anger. And the repeated use of this exercise, I think, is hardening the opposite neural pathway so that then in response to a similar situation, it is not just the anger that is activated. It is the full range of neural pathways that are activated that then result in a more balanced and loving response. But it takes practice because those pathways become hardened and uh, they are malleable, but they are um, less malleable the older we get and the more we respond to certain situations with a certain response. Uh, that's all I wanted to add. Yeah, it's always interesting to see the outfiguring or the um, outward manifestation of inner processes in a physical representation like the brain. And I think that there are, I'm in your boat and think that there are strong correlations between the two. <clears throat> Naturally, of course. Uh, thanks so much for that uh, final thought. And 
Jim, would you like to say anything to the listeners? I want to thank everybody that sent in questions. Those are what really uh, get us going and make us the happiest. We like to share our love and light with everybody however much we can. We hope you uh, take it all with a grain of salt and take that which has value and leave the rest behind. And please know that we love you all dearly, and we hope to uh, hear you and see you and be with you again next week. You've been listening to LL Research's weekly podcast, In the Now. If you've enjoyed the show, please visit our websites, llresearch.org and bringforth.org. Thanks so much for listening, and a special thank you to those who submitted questions. If you'd like to send us a question before the next show, please read the instructions on our page at www.llresearch.org slash podcast. New episodes are published to the archive website every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Have a wonderful week, and we'll talk with you then.